Welcome to Apostolic Voice. I'm your host, Ryan French, and I'm here today with my very, very dear friend, Reverend Joe Campitella, pastor of Christian Life Center and the host of the very popular broadcast, Christian Life Broadcast, which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts or watch them. His is also video. And today is the first time I've ever done a video podcast. I'm doing it in honor of my friend, Brother Campitella. So thank you for being here today and let me twist your arm into and taking this time. No arm twisting required. It's a tremendous privilege to be here. Tremendous privilege. Well, I love you, man. And I'm thankful for our friendship. Long time now. And um, I want to talk to you about how many how many years? Well, how long were y'all pastor when we first came here? So it was the second year. Wow. So uh, roughly 11 and a half years ago. Wow. That we've been connected. And I feel like the Holy Ghost connected us. I, I did too. It was I like an too. accidental thing. Yeah. I'm not preach keepers of the glory at at um, a Georgia district youth event, and I was there, and I remember my spirit was just like praise God, someone's final saying these things, you know, and uh, I immediately said, I have to know that guy, and he's I've got to be not just know of him, but I have to know him, and. Uh, Thank you, Jesus. So thank God. I felt the same thing about you. It was like an instant. It was an instant spirit connection. Yeah. And it's like when that happens, it's almost like you've been friends for such a long time. Yeah. And you, it's a, it's a, it's a deeper level connection than just acquaintance instantly. Right. And I, I agree. It's God. And I'm so thankful. At least the older I get, the more I'm appreciative of, of, of people that God puts in your life. Like, and especially you. Yeah. And, you know, I consider you. Dear friend, one of my best friends ever. And um, we were talking earlier at over Cowboy Chicken. Right. And I was Grace God. Amen. I felt the Holy Ghost yeah. right there. Cowboy Chicken. But uh, Tom, you were sitting in our home a few years back and you challenged me on something, mm. which at the moment I didn't really appreciate it as a good. I felt like you didn't appreciate it. Red blooded American. <laughs> but, uh, but it hit me. Wow. God just spoke to me through my brother. Wow. And uh, anyway, I'm thankful for you. Well, I am too. And, and this church owes a great debt to your anointing and your consecration because you've been an integral part of the revival of, of our congregation. Thank you, Jesus. And, uh, and you've prayed me through a lot of difficult times. Amen. Amen. So uh, it's been established. We're very close friends, yes, and it, yes. and which is very true. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be talking with uh, the Aptab ministers and we're going to do a kind of a Q&A session with them. Uh, and I wanted to just go over that today for all of the listeners who are called to ministry in ministry at all levels, from uh, upper echelons to, to just starting out. Uh, because I know I, I get a lot of feedback that a lot of ministers and aspired ministers listen to this program. And I just want to let them listen in on just... Um, maybe some, what I think of as essentials for, for ministry. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about is your view on uh, daily devotions, personal daily devotions for a minister. Um, we know, of course, that every saint of God needs to have personal daily devotions. But what would you say to a minister, especially maybe a young minister for this question, who is, Developing personal devotions. 
what should be their focus? What should be their goal in, in that? Thank you for asking that question. I think that's such an important question. Um, I would say when I began personal daily devotions as a teenager, I had no clue of what the goal should be. Looking back now over these years, it seems that the Lord was leading me into that goal. But um, it's to me, it's the foundation of everything. Before anything else happened in my life, Jesus called me into prayer and began to teach me. I didn't realize it, but he was teaching me how to pray, how to pray, how to touch him, how to break through Joe Capitello's monumental flesh monster. <laughs> and, um, and he taught me, he taught me how to get through that, taught me how to break through myself, taught me how to, he taught me the time it would take to break through me. Mm. Uh, and he was, he led me into that gradually. And I didn't realize it was a thing until I actually broke through myself mm. and entered an entirely different place with the Lord. And then he taught me I could do that every day because I thought it was a one moment deal, but then he taught me I could do it every day. So I think it's important. I think everybody's different. Um, there's no time minimum requirement in scripture. The Bible talks about the hour of prayer. Mm -hmm. And I think it means more of the time of prayer rather right. than the 60 minutes of prayer. Certainly. And I think each person has to find Jesus for themselves. They have to find the flow of God and learn how to live in the flow of God. Real ministry is going to be the residual effect or the outflow of what you find in private with the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not, if you're not in a place in the spirit where, uh, things are happening between you and Jesus, not much is going to happen between you and the people of Jesus. Right. So I think that that's the essential part of it all. And, and once you find that part, once you find him, so, so to, to answer the question directly, I think every young minister needs to get to a place in prayer where Jesus ceases to be a concept mm. and he becomes a person. Mm. Just like this. Wow. There's no doubt you're sitting here. There's no doubt. I have no doubt in my mind. I'm really talking French right now. That's powerful. And, and there's a place in prayer, which is an answer to the, to the statement of, of John the beloved. He said, the only way you're going to heaven is if you've seen the sun. I mean, I have the reference in my mind, but he, you've got to see the sun. Yeah. Well, how, well, but then he said to Thomas, uh, blessed are your eyes for they see, but blessed are the eyes that don't see mm -hmm. and still believe. Mm -hmm. So how do you see the sun? Not necessarily with your eyes, but there's an awakening, a personal spiritual awakening, even beyond receiving the Holy Ghost. It's a relationship awakening. Yeah. Where you become one with Jesus in relationship. And to me, that, that touch of God takes life and flows through ministry when it's found. So you got to break through yourself. You got to learn how to break through your DNA. Everybody's got their own story, their own past, their own history, their own scars, their own philosophy. Got to break through that in prayer. Doubt, fears, insecurity. Yes, sir. There's a whole list of who you are and, and who I am. My, my, Probably my prayer might look different than your prayer. Sure. And, and the, my approach to prayer might look different just as it is in any relationship. But I've got to do what gets me over me. And you've got to do what gets you over you. And, um, so I have a minimum time I pray. 
I, I, I really have learned through the years if I don't pray, it's not, um, it's not so much that I'm, I'm so deeply spiritual. It's that I'm deeply flawed mm. and I've got to, I've got to get into prayer. Otherwise I'm kind of worthless with everything. So I, I know for me, there's a certain amount of time that it takes me to get past my flat uh, and really get in. I think what you're describing is that closeness to God in prayer. But I think that can vary for different people, right? I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. It, it, there's not like a set time, but it does take time. Yes, sir. Let me ask you a very practical question. Do you separate your prayer time from your Bible reading time on a daily basis or do you do them at the same time? That's a good question. And I've talked to people, <laughs> I've talked to people that people have varied answers on. Yeah, they do. And, and truly, okay, so I would say 95% of my prayer life is, is prayer. Just prayer. Yeah. It's me sitting down with Jesus and talking. And, and there's some guys that they, they read the Bible first to get their mind sort of in that and then they pray. Other guys pray and read the Bible and kind of just flow and we're in God's taken in scripture. Um, for me, it's always been um, kind of a, a benefit, a kind of a, um, a special moment mm. between me and Jesus. This happened actually a couple of days ago. I was praying and I could not get out of the scripture. As I'm praying, he's bringing these things to my mind. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm fighting him, typing him out. And then I'm but I got to get back into prayer. He's like, but he keeps talking, keeps bringing you. Yeah. dramatically interrupting my prayer track. <laughs> and so for me, it's a, that's a special moment. That's Some guys are norm. That's not the norm at all. I feel like um, for me personally, I go on a journey when I pray. And, um, and if I read the Bible after I've gone on that journey, it's like a different, animal. Mm. it's like a different experience altogether. My mind is free to perceive the scriptures. So that's sort of my, but I, but I don't think there is a right way to do that. Sure. I think Jesus kind of does it with different people. What, what, what's yours? I separate my prayer time and my Bible reading time. But I do often find that my prayer time propels me into Bible reading time. So in prayer, it's very common for the Lord to drop, maybe not a revelation because it's not new, but an illumination that I had never quite, you know, just wasn't my mind. The Lord just dropped it in my spirit. And then I can't wait when I'm done praying to run to my Bible and explore that. Wow. And then it's like my prayer time turns into another dimension of study. And I thank you for that. <laughs> Very much so. Yes, sir. I, I, I had someone tell me when I was very young, minister. And I wish I could remember who it was because I'd love to give him credit. But uh, a minister told me, he said, Ryan, be careful when you get older in ministry and you've been preaching and teaching for a long time, that you never get to a place where all of your prayer and study time revolves around getting ready to preach or teach. Because what happens to many ministers is they spend all their time preparing to feed others that they're not actually feeding themselves. Well, and uh, has, have you found that 
do you see that ever affecting you? Have you been able to avoid that trap? Because I see how it could be easy to fall into that trap, especially the more preaching and teaching responsibilities you have on a weekly basis. Yes, sir. How do you keep yourself from that trap? So that is a constant balancing act for me. Yeah. And and I wish I could say I have uh, mastered that. I'll tell you my journey with that. You know, as an evangelist, I find that it's much easier. It was much easier to keep that. Yes. In its right spot. For me too. Yeah. I mean, it was, no, it was actually compared to where I'm at now, it was no problem. <laughs> I thought it was a challenge, but it was not a challenge. Pastoring takes you to a whole different place. Pastoring is a different lobster. Yeah. And so, you know, one thing um, in our last building program, you know, I, I, I felt so alarmed in my spirit because of the amount of work that was going to be involved and the amount of responsibility on me personally. And it was a wonderful blessing, but it's also, you know, blessings have a tendency to, to, to uh, you have to work. And I remember a pastor that I looked up to say this, he said that he lost his prayer life in his building program. Building something for the Lord actually disconnected him from the Lord. Is that Martha syndrome? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so that really, that was like a lightning bolt for me of alarm. And so in that last building program, I I was getting up, you know, 5 a.m. and getting my time in with the Lord every morning because, man, at eight o'clock, nine o'clock, there's no way on earth I'm going to be able to do anything else but what's happening with that building program. Yeah. And so the Lord kept me through that. Now, we're in a new season. And in this season, it's it's not this one season of intense effort. It's a protracted season mm-hmm. of intense effort. Yeah. And so I've had to manage my life in the stage I'm at now. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this stage. I'm at now is I, I'm, I, my morning devotion is, is I'm going to do that. I'm locking it. I'm, I'm, I'm ignoring my phone. I'm getting away from stuff with exceptions, with rare exceptions. Sure. And I'm also, I've learned and I felt guilty about this before, but lately it's like the Lord said, don't be, don't be dumb. This is not something you should go guilty about. I'm doing audio Bible all the time. Oh yeah, I mean, like uh, my drive to 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 work, absolutely to the church. My drive home, mm-hmm. anytime I'm doing, I'm I, that that Bible is playing in yeah. my spirit, and so it's not sitting down in intensive study, um, but it's it's constantly feeding into my spirit, and so to me, that's where I'm at now. I'm sure there's there's probably better ways to do that, but where I'm at now is. Is morning devotion absolutely, and then I've, I've got a constant stream of of the Word of God playing in my in my life. Anytime I get in the car, and um, God's help us. I love that. You know, I think what I'm hearing, if I were to summarize for for anyone listening or watching, um, there's no one, two, three. Pray this amount of time. Pray at this certain time study at this exact time, study this exact way. But you do have to find your rhythm with God. And if you don't do that, it will catch up to you. It'll catch up to you. That's a great point. And so 
sometimes we get caught up and I want a cookie cutter. Like I want to do it. Tell me exactly how to do it. And really no one can do that for you. You have to work that out with God. But if you fail to find that rhythm, it, it becomes disastrous on now where you'll be preaching in your flesh. You'll be ministering in your flesh. And that, and sadly that happens far too often. Um, and so, and the worst thing that can possibly happen with that is success. That's right. That's right. Cause we both, and, and this is a, this is a, this scares me to death is to, to see people have success, mm-hmm. but not through the spirit mm-hmm. and, and watch the darkness that comes over the mind that says, you didn't need to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a spirit success, and then there's just good old fashioned general success. And um, well, and yeah, and there's there's also this is a whole conversation, but the way you define success, yeah. I don't think God always defines ministerial success the way men do. You know, men define success often by large buildings and large crowds, and and money, all the things that we do in the flesh. And of course, we all want to have large crowds because we all want to see everyone say, and we all want money because (laughs) we don't want to pull our hair out or lose our hair. But, and there's nothing wrong with desiring those things to a certain point, but if you're only desiring them for, for the sake of notoriety or for the sake of accolades or to feel better, but not to actually bring glory to God to reach the loss and it can become very dangerous. And some people are talented enough to draw crowds. I mean, a lot of people draw crowds with no anointing. And, uh, but it, that's all it is, a crowd. It's not really a church. And yeah, you're right. The worst thing that can happen is to find quote unquote ministerial success without real relationship with God. Whew. We could talk about that for a long time. Let's go to question number two. Um, could you discuss the importance of being a soul winner and Bible study teacher instead of just seeking a pulpit ministry? I know that you were a soul winner before you were really a preacher. I, I know that about you because just not your story. Um, there's nothing wrong with desiring a pulpit ministry, right? I don't think so. I don't think so either, but do you feel like our priorities should be soul winner first, pulpit ministry second, or am I thinking about that incorrectly? Am I missing a piece? You know, let's, I think I want to define pulpit ministry. Okay. And so in American culture, the pulpit is synonymous with leadership. It's a leadership role. It's a leadership paradigm for the church. Sure. You are taking the head position in a way. Mm-hmm. And so to desire to be um, in leadership in the kingdom of God is not incorrect. Right. You know, absolutely. If a man desires the office of the bishop, so on and so forth. So um, to desire to to go as high as you can with the Lord is is a perfectly wonderful thing. Just like we should covet the good gifts. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. The issue, though, is seeking the pulpit only. Yes. Is that if there's no journey of fruit 
to that pulpit that is separated from that pulpit, when you get in the pulpit, in my opinion, it's going to be a, it's not going to be the ministry it could be. Because leadership, by definition, is is out in front, showing the way by example, not necessarily just speaking what you have found to be true in Scripture. Uh, you're leading the way, maybe in in Revelation and Scripture, but not leading the way in ministry. Yeah, you know what? What are you What are you doing that other people can mimic? So the question is: Is should we desire soul winning first? I think the very first step to ministry is first of all ministering unto the Lord. That's yes. the that's the absolute first step you'll ever do in any kind of ministry. Jesus will teach you how to minister unto Him. And it goes back to our personal prayer life. You minister unto the Lord. And it, and it comes out to the two to two components of our whole reason for being. And, and that is to worship God. Yes. And reach the lost. Yes. That's the only reason why we exist. Yeah. Is to, is to worship God and reach the lost. Yeah. So, you know, the, the Great Commission, we call it the Great Commission, the, the words of Jesus Christ going forth before he left the earth, go you therefore and teach all nations, go make disciples of all nations. That's not to the apostles only. That's not to, that's right, the, the preachers only. That's right. To every person that believes in Jesus Every Christian. So your first commandment, after receiving the Holy Ghost, and you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost come upon, comes upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses. Yeah. So, so it's, soul winner. you gotta be a soul winner. You gotta be a disciple maker. And, and you have to bear fruit with people. Um, now, are there exceptions to that rule where God will raise up a prophet? God will raise up um, someone that he just hears his voice and speaks what he said. Absolutely. Absolutely. But mixed in with whatever pattern of life God chooses for that individual, you are going to see fruit with people. Yeah. Fruit with souls, fruit with conversion, fruit with disciple making. Um, it has to be, has to be there. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Um, and, and, and for people to desire a pulpit that don't have time for Bible studies, for people to desire to preach to the crowds, to me, a major component is missing mm. in the spiritual character development of that ministry. Um, you know, if your if your revelation is not big enough for one person, it's too small for the masses. Right, right. And so, that's that's kind of my take on that. I've always ca- carried the philosophy, and I could be wrong. Uh, I'm open to to correction, but I've always felt like if if you can't preach in someone's home, that then you probably shouldn't be preaching in the house of God. Does that make any sense? Yeah. That I like that, <laughs> you know, it, uh, because preaching, you know, we've Americanized kind of the pulpit is the only place you can preach, but that's not true. You know, you can, you can, and, and we also associate preaching with, um, you know, the formalities that we have, which I love. I think all of those are good and there's a reason they're there, but you know, you can, you can preach the gospel in someone's home and in some ways, I think that's how I learned to preach, really, is long before I ever had pulpits open to me. 
I had homes full unto me. Wow. Now, I know that God leads all of us through different paths into ministry and to different ministries. And so I don't want to be one of these people where I say, you have to do it the way I did it, right? Because that's not always the case. God uses us in individual ways. But I do feel that I, I see at times people that desire perhaps the notoriety of being a preacher, but not the servanthood of being a soul winner. And uh, so really only you and God can know that about yourself, but you need to be honest with yourself. And, and if you, there's nothing wrong with desiring to have a pulpit ministry, but make sure that your heart is also in alignment with God's heart where you love reaching the I love that. And I think if you define pulpit ministry in the New Testament, it's different than 2024 culture. Yes. Yeah. Because in 2024, in our church culture, a pulpit is a place where a crowd has gathered for you. Yes. It's been gathered for you. Yes. Somebody else gathered that. Someone else brought that crowd for you. In the New Testament paradigm, even when Jesus sent them out to do signs, wonders, and miracles, there's no crowd gathered. Yeah. You got to go learn how to operate in the Holy Ghost to the degree that people will come and you will gather people. Yeah. And so there are, there are spiritual muscles that are exercised away from the pulpit that to me are essential. And I think this is just another way of saying exactly what you just said. They're absolutely essential to a fully functioning ministry. Absolutely. I love that. Okay, let's, let me go to question number three here. Could you give some study tips for people who want to rightly divide the word of God, whether for personal devotions, preaching, or teaching? We talked about whether you study and pray, but do you have any, I hate to call them tips and tricks, but you know what I mean? It's just study methods that you use uh, that you feel are universal and would be helpful to, to everyone? I think so. I think, um, and again, it, goes back to kind of each person's style and, and sort of temperament with scripture as it does with prayer. I'll tell you my quick journey okay. with, with the word of God. So my, where Jesus really began to help me be consistent. Um, I started reading three chapters a day. Mm. That was my goal. And I felt if I read three chapters a day, I am, I'm pretty spiritual. I am deeply spiritual. <laughs> I'm a man of God. <laughs> and so I would pray a lot. Uh-huh. And that I would cap it off with three icing on the cake scriptures a day. And and that God was patting me on my back. Good job, son. Wow. And and then as time went on, he began to speak to me out of those out of those sessions and, and opened my understanding to what I was reading. And I would get messages, you know, and yeah. And I was just enjoying it so much. But then after a certain amount of time with the Lord. I really begin to become frustrated at how little I understood those three chapters I was reading. Mm-hmm. And if anything challenging came to me in those moments, I would just kind of look at it. I would. I always had a concordance, a Bible encyclopedia, mm-hmm. and the Bible. Those that was the limit, the fullness of my uh, scholarly resources. And um, Bible dictionary, encycl- and I know Bible dictionary, encyclopedia, and concord. And you're old enough to where I mean, we're talking like book, actual book, actual yeah. books. Me and you. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, thank you for pointing that. You're welcome. 
<laughs> and yeah, so I would do that. And, and But then the Lord was like, well, what did you just read? I just read three chapters in Proverbs. What did you just read? I'd be like, three chapters in Proverbs. Yeah, yeah. what did you just read? And it hit me. I am not comprehending what I'm reading. And so I feel like the transition, looking back, the Lord took me from bulk intake. And it 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 started with three chapters, and then it went far beyond three chapters. Mm-hmm. And I'm just reading, reading, reading. They're reading the Bible through again. And the Lord was giving me a sort of complete bulk picture of his word. But once I gained that start to finish sort of picture, he wanted me to get into the details. Yeah. And I'll ne- what changed my life in studying scripture is writing commentary. My scripture Awesome. So I have I have an ongoing commentary that I'm writing. I I do my very best when I'm studying scripture not to let a single verse go by without defining what that verse is, what context it's in. Wow. And um, that that truly revolutionized my study life. And I would say this, you know, what what is the key to rightly dividing word truth? In 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 every minister's heart, I believe, there's a desire to go deeper in the word. Don't pass the simplicity of the word looking for something deeper. Yeah. That that simple word is powerful mm. all by itself. All by itself. Without having to get 19 commentaries mm. in the Greek and the Hebrew and the lexicon. Uh, the simplicity of the word of God is, is incredibly powerful. That's right. I would just throw in my two cents in as you were speaking. Yeah, I think. Because you talk about the simplicity. When I first really started taking studying the word seriously, of course, I, I was in the shadow of my father, who's one of the most brilliant men in the world. Big shadow. And so, you know, that was intimidating for me. And so what I did, uh, I, I, I would read a, a verse and then read every commentary, every inside, you know, 900 different references. And, and I realized that over time that was destructive. And I've found over the years that I've streamlined to where when I find helps that are actually helpful, that less can be more in study in terms of your resources. You know, I, I talked to one guy one time and, you know, he's got 47 encyclopedias and, you know, he's got 900 commentaries that he goes to. And I think, wow, just the, the amount of time it would take to do that, you know. And I, I see young ministers do that a lot where it's like information overload. You know, they're just, and, and they're not retaining it. You know, sometimes streamlining, there's no shame in that. It's finding you have resources that work for you. Amen. Maybe that'll be helpful. Maybe that won't be helpful to anyone. Maybe that'll be helpful. I think it's extremely helpful. And I can I add something to yeah, that? That topic is so important because, again, you know, the desire to say something that's never been said. Yeah. It's, yeah, 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 yeah. And to me, that motive, that motive is incorrect. Yes. Instead of desiring to say something never been said, Desire to say something God saying. God saying. That's so, so powerful. If you don't hear anything else that we said today, hear that. Well, I t- 
Amen. Yeah. Amen. And and for me, the my personal journey with that was um it was pretty brutal because you know, the people I'm around, the Varnums and and Brother Stone King and, and the people that impacted my life, flow is paramount. Mm-hmm. Find the flow, release the flow, stay in the flow. Yeah. And so And you have to say it like that too. Yes. The flow. In the exactly right. Yeah. Hundred percent. And and so when I began to preach, my study life was pretty small mm. in comparison to my prayer life. And I pray five or six hours a day, especially if I knew I was preaching, I'd stay all night at church. You know, my pastor had the tendency to call me the night before saying, hey, I want you to preach tomorrow. And so I'm like, okay, all night prayer meeting, here we go. And so my thought, my the actual content of my thought was very small. Mm. But the content of the flow, yeah, was was much bigger. Yeah. And the Lord would work in that. Like, honestly, Brother Rye, that would I remember my first message, like my first official message to our Friday night Jubilee service. And I preached a message and and it was it was entitled It's Now or Never. And I had like six scriptures, two pages of notes. Most notes I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and really five minutes into that message, the Holy Ghost took over the whole service. People are dancing, shouting. Their young people are out of their pews. They're drunk in the Holy Ghost. We stayed there till three o'clock in the morning, drunk in the Holy Ghost. And I'm thinking, I am a man of God. <laughs> I've got it. And Brother Varnum always said, go back and watch yourself and make improvements. Yeah. I don't know I would need to approve on that, yeah. but here we go. That's great advice, by the way. Yeah. I watched myself and I literally became depressed because I saw how pathetic I did that too. Oh yeah. my goodness. It was, it was terrible. Yeah. Like it was horrible. Yeah. But God moved. And when I, when I started digging deeper, or even tried to relay a deeper meaning. This is uh, this is just me, because other people do it, and it's just like it's so beautiful, right? But when I first started to relay some deeper meanings, the spirit of God would shut down. Mm. It would disastrously shut. Down. I would lose the flow. I would lose the crowd. Mm. And and I I've, I've been spending three days in this thing, digging it out, and I know I've heard a word from God, and I just want to give him this extra nugget. It would shut down. And so Jesus taught me in a very brutal way, find my flow, say what I want you to say, and get out of the way. Wow. Now, that was my particular role. And there's other roles in ministry. That's right. That's, you know, that's very important. But um, to, to the desire to say something that's never been said was a massive temptation for me. And God had to break me, too. me out of that. Me too. I think... Probably be very rare to find a minister where that was not a problem for them that they had to overcome. I suspect. I don't know that for absolute fact. But I know for me, it, the most freedom I ever felt is when I finally let the Lord release me of my, I don't know, fleshly desire to have something new and profound and just amazingly revelatory. And what I found is when I'm not seeking that, it come, it, things like that will come. 
That's where else. Yep. That's, that's so true, true. brother. Uh, you know, just when you're not voice. seeking him for them, seeking him for him. Mm. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's a powerful statement. It's a whole different place. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I love that. Well, this has been great. Let's see here. Uh, number four, can we, uh, can we discuss the importance of spiritual authority and pastoral submission in a minister's life? Yeah, I'll be up front and say that I believe that uh, every pastor should be. Now, I know that you reach bishophood, and I, but we're probably not talking to bishops today, most likely. But you and I, we're submitted to ministry, and yet we're in ministry. I believe that submission is vital, to, and I know you do too, so. But maybe you could talk to us about that a little yeah it's vitally important submission is the channel through which authority flows yeah it cannot flow in the other way and submission is not an ugly word it looks ugly it feels ugly until you light up with it and then it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen um, apostolic authority will not be relayed without submission right and God will intentionally put you at odds with the one you are supposed to submit to. Yeah. God will dig until he finds the thing in you to poke and does it on purpose. And and that's not always people will say it's the devil doing that. But often it's the opposite. Oh, man. God yeah. is allowing that. God allows it. You ain't kidding. Yeah. Yeah. God will God will find out where your your lines are and he'll cross them. Yeah. And um for me you know, truly, of course, I didn't start full-time evangelism until I was 32, which I would think is a little bit of a late bloomer, in my opinion, from some of my friends that started at 16. It's not a lot. And I didn't start pastoring until I was 42. And uh, so I'm a, I'm a late bloomer, I think. And But for from the age of 21 to 32, God beat my brain, though. I'm not kidding with you. He whooped me good. I had, I had major problems, <laughs> character problems, um, anger problems, emotional problems, submission problems. And I was praying a lot. You know, just outside looking in, you you would see, wow, that's consecration. But my character wasn't matching my consecration, and so the Lord took me through procedures with. James and Naomi are to where um, I had to learn what real submission looked like. And it's bloody. Yeah. It's bloody. It's ugly. It's brutal. Mm -hmm. But it's apostolic. It's apostolic. And as we said before, you will never learn how to operate in apostolic authority until you learn how to operate in apostolic restriction. Yeah. Until your pastor yanks your reins, even if it's something non-biblical. Yeah. Even if it's something that you don't find a single scripture for. I'm not talking about go out and, okay, I want you to go out and smoke a cigarette. Right, right. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that is just his preference. Yeah. Until your, your reins get yanked and you learn how to pray through that. Mm-hmm. That that temperance developed in that moment 
is the exact muscle needed to operate in apostolic authority mm-hmm. and not be abusive and not go off your rocker. Yeah. And, and God gave me outs. He gave me places to hit the eject button in the process of that journey of submission mm. to where even other pastors came to me. Ah, oh yeah. And said, hey, if it doesn't work out for you at Souls Harbor, yeah, come work for me. Yes. I'll pay you more. They said, I'll pay you more. Yeah. We, we'll treat you right. Right, right, right. Because I'm at the Varnums. You know, he's got a son, Jason Varnum. He's going to be the pastor. Yeah. I, I, what am I doing? You know, I can only preach out once a month. I've got offers, but I can only preach out once a month because I got to play the piano and be the youth pastor. I'm just being hindered and hemmed in. It's yeah. all the nonsense. <laughs> the devil beats your brains in about. Yeah. Yeah. And um, my my pastor, I needed it so bad, man. He corrected me so strongly two times. He nailed my britches, man. And my spirit rose up. Who does he think he is? Does he know how much I pray? Does he know how much I fast? And we can spiritualize our rebellion. Ooh, that's the truth, man. And that's that's exactly the temptation. Yeah, in that moment. I'm so spiritual. I don't need that voice. I'm bigger than that mm-hmm. voice. My ministry is beyond the confines of this. Man. Yeah, I love outgrown it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've outgrown this. That's that's so true. And and during that time, those voices would come, the voice of the devil. And somehow, Brother Ryan, God got through my thick skull. Mm, praise God. It put me in a prayer room. And I'm crying because my, I thank God for my pastor. Yeah. I'm, oh my God, I just saw him in district conferences. Like, and I told him the guy sitting next to me, he's like, they're awesome. I'm like, let me tell you something, dude. Those people delivered me from stupid. <laughs> and you kind of have, you got to have, you got to <laughs> love as of now looking on the other side of it, you have to love the person enough to tell them the truth about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me, my pastor, now, now, Y'all, I don't know how y'all going to take this, but this is the truth. James Edward Barnum called me a loser in a, in a, in a, I'm not, an idiot. Oh, an idiot. Yeah. Right. I mean, the most politically incorrect word you could possibly say. He's like, oh, you were the idiot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, he's smooth as silk, and he's a, I mean, th- this was one moment that this happened. But you know what? I was an idiot. <laughs> he... He told me the truth, just like Jesus looked at Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah, yeah. Or called him, thou fool. How long will I tolerate you? Yeah. Let me tell you something. You got an apostolic covering. Now, this you push the button on this question. Yeah, yeah. If you've got an apostolic, and I don't know how long, you just tell me. No, no, Lord, go. If you have an apostolic covering that's truly apostolic covering, you are you are going to get nailed at some point, and God's going to design it to test your spirit. Yeah, because the only way you'll learn how to operate in apostolic authority is if you properly navigate that restriction. Yeah, and um, I thank God that somehow He told me to go pray, go pray through it, get over it, and submit. Yeah, and because of that submission, now that authority that James Warren walked in flows in my life. And Naomi Varnum, it flows in my life. I want to tell everybody listening, you're going to have the opportunity to eject the process. Yeah. If you eject the process, you're going to do incredible damage to your journey. Stay submitted. Stay right. You don't get to know the why 
behind your wilderness yet. Yeah, but looking back, you'll know. And you know, that that eject button will look spiritual. Mm. That is the truth. It'll come packaged as, oh, God's giving me this opportunity. And it'll give you an out where you can even leave and maybe you can look like the good guy sometimes. And, uh, but you will lose the authority when you do that. We said it earlier, you said it. You said uh, submission is only submission when you disagree. Mm. Otherwise, you're just walking in agreement. And if you want to have the apostolic authority, you have to be submitted to the apostolic authority. But a lot of people want to skip that process and then have all this authority, but you're unworthy of the authority. You've never even demonstrated it. How can you exercise it? So that's powerful. Well, I love that. Hey, TG, I hope everybody's, I hope everybody's listening. Do you believe ministers should aspire to live a life of separation, conviction, and caution above and beyond what is required of the average saint? And when I say average saint, I don't mean that in some condescending way. Uh, the saints of God are powerful, incredible, and I thank God for apostolic saints. But do you believe that the ministry should live according to a, maybe even have a higher standard? Or do you think it should all just be the same? No, for instance. The answer is yes. And we see that example in Scripture over and over and over. John the Baptist. Yeah. John the Baptist had a dress code mm -hmm. that was above and beyond the culture. Yeah. He had a diet that was above and beyond the culture. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, get circumcised. Yeah. He told Peter, he withstood Peter to the face yeah. about this issue mm -hmm. of this Jewish Christian version in, in Galatians. And, 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 but yet he told Timothy, Timothy, just do it. You're going to walk into a hostile place. You're going to have to, even, it's, it's, even though the scripture gives you a complete out in this area. Yeah. Go do it and, and do it for appearance sake. Do it because it's going to give you more credibility. Mm -hmm. Not required, but beneficial. And it's gonna it's gonna add leadership credibility. To Not you. a heaven or hell issue. Correct. Not everything has to be a heaven or hell issue. Correct. Sometimes we should do it because it's it's wise. And it and the separation is a good thing. Just like you know, I know that we're in the New Testament era and, and it makes people nervous when I talk like this, but there is correlation to the the and we're all priests, of course, in in the New Testament, but there is a correlation to to the priesthood and ministry in that there is a distinct calling out that we are to, we're to live a life that is, in my opinion, uh, a life that is an example to where we can, and, and maybe the, the way to say it is this, and, and this is, I hear my mother, God, and uh, my mother used to always say, uh, wherever you compromise or where, wherever you draw the line, people are going to lag behind just a little. So make sure that you're far enough away from the danger zone that when they're lagging behind a little, they're still safe. And I see that mindset going away. We were losing that where it's, we just, it's all one. And I think that's very dangerous because leadership is leading and people are not always going to be 
fact, most of the time, in my experience, now in your church, it's probably, they're all probably right where you are. But uh, typically I find that people are a step behind the ministry. They're not in their consecration in all of it. And you want to be at a place where if they're a step behind you, you're still making it to heaven, not just falling over the edge. Do you think that's a correct mindset? I do think that's a correct mindset. And I think, you know, your, your lifestyle is blazing a path for people to follow. Follow me as I follow Christ. Yeah. And so um, I think another principle here, Brother Ryan, is, is a spiritual dominion principle. Mm. So, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that achieve various levels of victory in their life on earth. Mm. I think God is so merciful, so good, so graceful that there's going to be people dealing with um, issues on earth that that um, they kept praying through, they kept repenting, and and they're going to go to heaven. I think I think uh, there's going to be a lot of people that were imperfect on earth. But because they were submitted, because they kept staying faithful, mm-hmm. um, they might have still had flaws, weaknesses. I'm trying to get through this gray area here, but the point I want to make to you is that as ministers, you cannot have dominion over the spirits that you entertain yourself. Mm-hmm. You can't loose people from spirits that you are entertaining in secret. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, we don't have a television in our home. We, I think television's utter stupidity right? to have in a home as a Christian. Um, and, and there are spirits associated with, with Hollywood. There are spirits associated with, with um, so many segments of our society. Right. That if you are not living, now can you go to heaven? That's not the question. Right. Maybe. Right, maybe. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. But, but. Do you have dominion over the spirits that are working behind those things? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you've opened the door. And so as ministers, we we live in a place where we have to be separated from the culture. The only reason why John had authority to gain the culture he was preaching to is because he lived separated from the culture. They came out to see him. And uh, John was in the desert until the day of his showing to Israel. Jesus was as a root out of dry ground. These are desert dwellers. They do not live mixed in with the culture. Mm. They live separate, apart. And then when they step into where culture is, they have complete power and authority over every spirit culture's deal. To me, that's the paradigm of apostolic leadership. So we've talked about this a lot today, and I'm going to just jump into it. It's episode 20, by the way, uh, Christian Life Broadcast. You go listen to uh, Brother Campatella's uh, teachings on, on facial hair. Mm. You're going to try I, to get me in yeah, I'm like, double trouble. Well, I'm going to get myself in trouble too, but uh, I'll admit this is not an issue that I've spent lots of hours thinking about. Um, however, I think I've always known instinctively that there is a spirit behind push for ministers to grow facially. And uh, I'm laughing because, because you know, I just made people man. Oh, there, yes, which you're not, you're not that unfamiliar spirit. But no, I, well, listen, when I did the when I did the podcast and the uh, the blog at lionafrench.com on uh, on 
uh, died here. Ooh, that really, you and I worked on, you really helped me with that, that article as well. So I, I know what it's like to step into these, uh, areas. Let's go. Let's do it. So, uh, exactly one of the things that we're talking about is, you know, we could argue all day about whether or not, you know, facial hair sends straight to hell, split hell wide open, but in, it does seem that there is a, a cultural spirit at the very least that is attached to the proliferation of this push for facial hair. Um, and, and this is why I advise any ministry that's connected with mine and our local church. And, and we tell them that we're going to be submitted to be quite shaded uh, because of the spirit of compromise that's associated with, uh, and historically in, in American culture specifically, the facial hair has such a, a sinful and sexual connotation to it. Um, am I anywhere near your thoughts on this? I know we don't come at it from the exact side. I don't even know what you're talking <laughs> You're gonna just leap out of your heading and die. <laughs> Has he brought us into this wilderness to die? <laughs> oh man, I, I I don't think you could be more one more than. I mean, I think you're dead on. Yeah, I think you're dead on. And to and several things it goes back to the submission issue. Like the the Yankee, if you want a beard, you can't play on the Yankees, right? Uh, if you want a beard, you can't work at Disney World. Yeah. Can you believe that's a standard they still hold at Disney World, for God's sake? You could have a mustache, but it has to be cut a certain way. And so, is there biblical precedent for speaking against beards overtly that says no beards, beards are sinful? Absolutely not. It goes back to submission to the man of God. Now, on the spiritual connotations of a beard in modern American culture, I think anybody with eyes to see can see that facial hair represents spiritual and cultural shift in modern American culture. Not in all American culture, right? And especially not in almost anywhere else in the world, it seems. Because I'm not familiar with the microcultures of, of other nations. Right. As, yeah, as yeah, I am with. Yeah, we don't know that like we do. Right. But in America... You know, we were talking about this, you know, Charles Parham, Topeka, Kansas, one of our, one of the men we, we talked about him quite a bit. I'm, I'm almost positive. He had a beard and mustache. Yeah, and absolutely. No problem. Was he a man of God? Absolutely. He was a man of God. Pioneer. Um, and other men like him, G.T. Haywood, mustache. We're talking men in the early era of modern American culture. But as you get into the 20s, the culture shifted. Not only did it shift in America, it was a dramatic world shift for the first time in human history. Women began to wear pants and masks. I'm talking in human history. Human history. And and I I had the, the privilege of traveling to Europe um, early 90s, right after communism collapsed, 1989. In the early 90s, American culture, because of the communist disconnect of American television, even in the early 90s, the communist women that came out of these countries, Serbians, Hungary, Germany, 
they were all wearing skirts. Mm. They all had long hair. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Why? Because they were, since the American culture was kept at it, they were filtered from it because of communism. communism. So, so in the 20s, you pushed a button here. No, I'm glad. I'll okay. All right. In the 20s, a world shift happened where women began to wear pants, cut the hair, the bob cut. World War I solidified this, roaring 20s. And then, of course, I believe there was a spiritual backlash. You know, the economy completely collapsed. The Bible talks about that in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, the rebellion was to the degree that, and we look at it as, as, and with nostalgia nowadays, it was an incredibly rebellious, sinful time in human history. Sure was. Kind of came back, and then late 30s, World War II kicked in. Again, pants, now pants became solidified. Mm-hmm. Cutting the hair became solidified in American culture. And and then in the 60s, men, men with beards, it was an absolute sign of rebellion. And long hair, by the way. And absolutely long Can't hair. Separate that. Yes, sir. Nice yes. to you. That's the truth. And and since then, you talked about the 80s. We made some great historical points in the 80s with beards and homosexuality. Yeah. And and the emergence of the spirit of our culture. And so beyond any shadow of any doubt from any legitimate historical perspective, you can associate these things without Jesus, without the word of God, without anything. These physical markers were always indicators of cultural, and we would say spiritual shift. Yeah. And we're in that at this very moment in time right now, this very moment in time. It's happening in a movement. There's a massive shift. It's all beneath the surface. But every once in a while, as one of my Dear friend says, I won't mention his name on here because I don't want him to get sliced. Right, right. He, he's watching people's spirit grow out of their face. Mm. And so are there scriptures against, overtly against wearing a beard? Absolutely not. Did Jesus have a beard? Ah, man, that's a good question. And, yeah. and you can get into that one pretty good. Yeah, and, and again, uh, Christian Life Broadcast, episode 20. Everyone should go listen. So I'm in agreement with what you said. I think that that is, um, boy, that's that's true. Yeah, flowing out of your face. Well, you know, sometimes there there is a danger of our motives as well, and sometimes there is a spirit behind a spirit where it's what are we trending towards? What are we going towards? And uh, if there's one thing that that I see in the non-apostolic church, but you know, the apostolic church, we, without meaning to, we're often influenced by, you know, I see a lot of the uh, very popular Christian artists, singers right now, non-apostolic, you know, with long, 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 long hair. And I, I heard one the other day say, uh, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to look like Jesus. I thought, well, Jesus absolutely does not have long hair. Uh, it's irrefutable. It's irrefutable. Uh, and so we have, and, and then I saw, now, I'm, now I'm, I'm getting a little too deep in culture, but I, someone sent me an Instagram clip. I don't remember what they call them, stories. I'm almost entirely off social media these days because I just, I, it just discourages me to be on it, seeing things, you know. But, Someone sent me an Instagram clip, and uh, I, it was a it was a 
some kind of Christian comedian with very long hair. And he was reading the scriptures in Corinthians 11 against long hair and laughing at them. And I thought, you know, I used to feel like, you know, people did things out of ignorance. And now I'm saying, no, we're just, it's just a, it's a bold rebellion that says, I don't care what the Bible says. And anyway, I, I think those, I think all of these things are, are connected. All these spirits are connected. I think so too. Uh, and, and there's a, a cultural shift and we have to decide, are we willing to be, are we willing to stay countercultural? But we, in order to be subjected and submitted to scripture, we have to. Amen. We have to. Anyway, in the, in the underlying principle that the devil is, is coming against is please remove the differences between you and the world mm-hmm. so you can appeal to the world. Mm-hmm. We have this power. We have this revelation, this Jesus name revelation. We have this speaking in tongues. We have miracle signs of wonders. If we could just get these other piddly things out of the way mm-hmm. that present obstacles to the world, getting into the church, we could have a revival on a much greater scale. That is an absolute lie from hell. It's a lie. It's a lie from hell. And, you know, I can hear my grandpa saying, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And so at some point, if you look like the world and talk like the world and act like the world, you're, you're just the world. And uh, a lot of what we call churches are, and I don't mean in the apostolic movement, but just in America, in general, a lot of what we point to and say that's a church is not a church. That's exactly right. It's just a gathering of people who call themselves Christians. But I can call myself, I mean, we see in culture, boys calling themselves girls, girls. You can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. It doesn't mean you are that thing. And I can I can profess, even Jesus said, there's going to be people that say, Lord, Lord, haven't I done this? Haven't I done that? In your name. But he's going to say, depart from me. And I think that describes a lot of the church world today because the church world has become so secularized. And we're at a crossroads in the apostolic movement where we've become, it it was almost easier for us when everyone made fun of us and hated us and those stupid holy rollers, those hayseed hicks, you know, because, you know, we were forced into being outsiders. But now there's a pressure where we want you to be an insider. If you just let go of a few of these, you know, just let that go. You could be, you know, in some ways that's more dangerous than when people were beating us. Ministries in the church has always thrived in, in seasons of, of martyrdom and seasons of, of intense attack. But, when you feel like this pressure, oh, I want to be accepted. Well, that appeals to, well, I, if I just let this, you know, two or three things here go, I'd be accepted. And the modern churches, we've got to come to grips with that and decide, no, we're going to be who we are. We're going to be fully apostolic. Anyway, so that's just my two. You don't, and, and by the way, uh, just because I say it doesn't mean that uh, Brother Campitello agrees with me 100%. I love he, reserve, he reserves the right to disagree with anything I say. 
All right, we've been going. Let's see here. We've been going a good while. Let, let me try to get one more question in here. Um, Can you I, tell how long we've been going? Where's the? Well, I was. Oh, okay. Yeah, there it is. All right, let me ask you this one because this is a good one. Can you talk about how to be an effective altar worker? That's number one. So it's kind of a two-part question. Do's and don'ts, best practices, all of that. And also, could you talk about praying with members of the opposite sex in a way that is godly and righteous and holy? Maybe some guy. Yes, sir. Um, effective altar working. Altar, the altar is the place where um, a lot of spiritual activity is taking place. It's a place of impartation, a place where hearing the word of God preached culminates in a, a divine moment of, of meeting miracle. And um, so being an effective altar worker is bridging the gap between that person and the need. Mm. Bridging the gap, I'm sorry, bridging the gap between that person and their answer. Yeah. And um, meeting that need. And so, um, again, it's a product of your personal devotion. In my personal opinion, when you lay hands on someone, you are inserting your spirit, your faith, your mindset, your life in between that person and their obstacle. You're getting in between them and the devil um, and becoming a channel an interrupted channel of God's power. And so um, it's, it's very important that, that we learn how to flow. If you learn how to flow in private, flowing in the altar is going to be much easier. If you learn how to operate in the gifts of the spirit in private, which is interesting to say, you'll learn how to do it in, in public. Mm. Um, learning the voice of God in private, when you're surrounded by the noise of the altar, you'll it'll be much easier to pick up. Wow! And so it, it's a product of your of your prayer life. Uh, Billy Cole talks about some stuff that I've always looked to and, and used. Talks about how he prayed and fasted for the gift of faith for years mm-hmm. in Thailand because he couldn't pray anybody through to the Holy Ghost, and then he got it. And God told him, "You'll never have to pray for the gift of faith again." And of course, he changed the world. Yeah. Um, so there are there are pivotal moments where you break through into dimensions of operation that once you tap into that, it just it flows out of your life almost instinctively. That all comes in prayer. That all comes in fasting. This is the more spiritual side, and we'll get to the practical side. But um, you know, knowing you knowing the voice of God, I, and I, I think also you can't take people to a place in the altar that you have. Yeah. If you're trying to get someone that's bound to a place of total liberty, yet you don't have total liberty, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, if you've, if you're trying to get someone to get a miracle and you've never experienced a miracle, you've never been a part of a miracle, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. To take that person to a place you've never been. So to me, God works with that individual first and then establishes some landmarks in their life that are translated into that altar. Because the laying on of hands is an outflow of a life. Preaching is the outflow of a life. It's all who, who you are is being inserted. Yeah. So, um, you know, the more you pray, the more the gift of faith operates. The more you fast, the more these things will be pronounced in your life. Um, so if you feel like you're at a place where nothing's happening in the altar, I encourage you to challenge yourself in prayer. 
Mm -hmm. challenge yourself in fasting. And you'll be surprised how much more of a flow is accessible in that altar. Um, I've also noticed that the more I pray and fast, the less the human spirit interferes with me laying hands on somebody. Mm. So a lot of times when you touch someone or you're in an altar, the spirits that that person's dealing with will come at you. Even the doubts or the fears or the challenges in that person's mind, you touch them, they will come at you. And, and I've noticed if I'm not as prayed and fast up as I should be, it has a lot more weight on what happens in an altar. Wow. But when I'm prayed and fasted up, those things are just brushed aside. And it's like they don't even exist. And you just go right in. Mm. Um, you know, the practical side. So so bottom line with that is your, your prayer life, your personal prayer life is, to me, the determining factor of your effectiveness in the altar. Now, when you're in the altar, especially you know, because it involves the physical laying all the hands. Um, there are ways that you can distract people by how you lay hands on them. Like, yeah. A lot of times at Pentecost, we, we substitute uh, faith for physical activity. Yeah. Shaking people. Yeah. And Billy Cole talks about that. I, I really encourage you to get teachings by Billy Cole. It's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. And he, of course, he has a, a million YouTube videos. But, um, you know, you, you can... You can um, you can distract people by how you pray for them. Yes. And especially if it's the opposite sex. My pastor taught this, and I just think it's just wonderful wisdom. Um, you know, if you're laying hands on uh, a woman and it's here, you know, you're going to, your eat good is going to be evil spoken of. That's her one. And you're extracting, or if you're on the back, mm-hmm. you know, to me, if if you're laying hands on a, a woman, this this is a good way to do it or on the head. Anywhere else, you know, it's kind of off limits. Yeah. Um, you never know what a person's gone through. And so I always encourage people I teach altar working to, to really pay attention, especially in the mixed crowd, only touch the forehead or the, the wrist. I had a lady grab my hand and put it on a woman's chest in an altar. Mm. And there, she was dealing with a spirit. She was demon possessed. And this one lady literally grabbed my hand. Honestly, before I could even think about it, my hand was on her chest. I'm like, sweet person got my hand off. And, and um, this lady was so out of it. I don't think it even dawned on her what had happened. But to me, that is like, you got to be in control of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And the altar. You got to be in control of your, your physical actions. Uh, not spitting on people. Yes. Yeah, a big deal. I've been spit on quite a bit. I was spit on Thursday evening. And uh, right in here, and <laughs> and it's like, thank you for the word, but why did you do this? Yeah. Bit? You know, it's like um, you can you can avoid that. Just turn your head, and yeah. they're here. Spit on the people behind them. Right, right. That way, right. the person you're praying for is is not distracted, yelling too loud in the ears. Yeah. So, so the point is, is there's, and I have a, I have a lot on this, but the point is, is that you want to minimize the things that can that can take away from the flow of the Holy Ghost. That's right. And so I want to quench the spirit. Yes, sir. And surprisingly, little things like bad breath. I don't care if you prayed 19 hours straight, you got bad breath. Only thing that's flowing out of you is the devil. It ain't going to be God. Yeah. And it's, it's just not good. And so little things like that, thinking through your interaction and that close proximity to people, boy, that can really help the altar. And if you couple that with a prayer life, a prevailing prayer life, fasting, in the word of God's 
man, effective altar working is instinctive. It just flows out of your life. And some of the practical things you've talked about, I think of as sort of common sense, like the same is true just in any normal conversation. If you were to, you know, shake someone violently, we know that in any normal context that would could be disturbing. And if you spit in someone's face in any normal context, we know that that would be inappropriate. And so uh, if, if you kind of keep some just kind of basic common sense to it, typically that can be, be very helpful. Amen. I think your posture of prayer is important in the altar. Mm-hmm. You know, you can pray for someone. You can pray on behalf of someone. Mm-hmm. You can pray with, with someone. someone. Or you can stand at a place of authority and speak to the mountain mm-hmm. to where that person's not even in the equation. Mm. And so there's dimensions of altar work. And I think all of those are important. Absolutely. You know, join, joining with the brother powerful is, is an incredibly strengthening moment. Yes. Praying on behalf of someone is an incredibly, they don't know what to pray. You know what to pray for that situation. You're praying on their behalf. God, I need you to do this. You know, that's what they need. And praying for someone, God touched them, God healed them, is is another level of authority. To me, the highest level of authority is speaking to the mountain. Mm. I speak to this tumor right now, and I command you to shrivel up and leave their body instantly. To where it's you and Jesus, and it's a place of, you, you are no longer with them looking for the solution. You are no longer believing with them for the solution. You're no longer praying for them for that solution. God is making you the solution. Wow. That's powerful. And, and when you look at the, this is uncomfortable a little bit, but when you look at the terminology in the New Testament, the Bible says Paul healed them. Yes. Peter healed them. Yeah. Uh-huh. Why? Because God gave us that gift. It's here's your car. Go drive it. Mm-hmm. Did God make it? Yeah, God made it. Is it from God? Yeah, it's from God. Could you do it without God? No, you couldn't do it without God. That's right. still you. Yeah. You're the vessel. And the Bible actually puts it in terms of Peter healed them. So you are now in a place of authority and faith where you are the solution to their problem. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, I think the highest ten of the highest level. That's powerful. Well, on that incredibly powerful note, I want to end with a segment uh, that we do quite often at uh, at the Apostolic Voice, it's called uh, <laughs> it's called gross, good, great. No, my kids would correct me. It's called uh, yeah, gross, good, great. So basically, what we do is we taste some. Ba- now, I'm assuming you may have you had these before. Okay, so you have to pretend like you've never had them. Okay, I've never had those in my So I have never had these. Uh, but what I'm also doing is I'm doing a twist on gross good great because I'm on this health kick right now. I've lost weight and all that. Good. It's the same weight I've lost the last 20 years, but you know, over and over again. Uh, and so my wife keeps telling me that, you know, the healthier things are just as good as the unhealthy things. So uh, I've never tried the skinny dipped almonds, dark chocolate, peanut butter. Uh, but I do love chocolate and I do love peanut butter. Uh, and this is supposed to be a much healthier choice than, you know, like your plant is uh, chocolate covered nuts. What is this called? A good, great, gross, good. 
I'm sorry, I butchered it. What is it? <laughs> I don't know anymore. It's not a G word. Yeah, no, I don't. Uh, gross good grape. So, gross good grape. Okay, yeah. sorry. So we're judging the level of this. Uh, right. All so one, one through uh, three is gross. Okay. A scale one to ten. Uh, four, five, six is good. And seven, eight, nine, ten is great. So basically what you do is you just try it, rate it. But I am also rating whether or not the healthy versions are anywhere near as good as the unhealthy versions. Gotcha. Now, I've, I've only had, I haven't had this one. Okay. I've only had the skinny dip dark chocolate. Okay. So this so is a new never, experience. All right, good. So this is all new experience. All new experience. One of the rules of gross good grace to be that you've never had it and that you can get it at any typical grocery store. So all our listeners can go try it. And watchers. All right. So, and you also, the other rule is you have to chew as loud as possible into the microphone. So no dainty eating. I mean, this is a real rule. Like it would be like okay. this. I'm going to do three at a time. All right. Well, I'll do four. I'll share a little secret. I, I don't typically like almonds either. Even though I know they're really good for you. Usually I just like healthier options. I think my chewy is more vulgar than yours. You're doing a good job. I mean, you're, it's like you're plague manuring your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you uh, go first. One through ten. I have to ask you. Okay. I hate to complicate this. All right. But are we comparing them to anything or just taking them as they are? I mean, are we comparing them to like dark chocolate covered almonds? I'm comparing it. In my mind, because I love chocolate covered, like peanuts and, and almonds of like, you know, like the real deal, full throttle, unhealthy. So I'm comparing it to um, like the planter's milk chocolate, because usually I prefer milk chocolate. Okay. I so, usually dislike dark chocolate. Full disclosure, I usually dislike dark chocolate very much. Okay. But also for the sake of good gross grape, just kind of give it its own merit. So compared to my favorite sort of covered nut, mm -hmm. like a dark chocolate covered cashew. Yes. I would give this a four. Yeah, it's hard to beat a cashew. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's a little bit below average. Like if I had them available and nothing else was there, you know, probably could live with it. But if I had a dark chocolate covered cashew, you're going to go to that. I'm going to it. Now, if I am trying to be healthy, mm-hmm. And judging this based upon the level of deliciousness in most healthy foods out there, like mm -hmm. the vegan stuff and that mm -hmm. low sugar stuff, mm -hmm. I would say this is like a seven. You know, I, I was going to say, like, I, I'm actually stunned because I, I actually just truly expected <laughs> to hate this. I really did. But it was quite good. I, I would eat it. I'm not sure. I, I think I would probably give it. Even compared to the unhealthy options that I prefer, I'm still going to give this a seven. Mm. Although with the unhealthy options, I would give them a 10 for sure. But uh, I could substitute this and probably live. To be a good guy. That's awesome. The peanut butter. I think the peanut butter is what, I don't love dark chocolate. Usually it's, it's a little too bitter for me. 
but the peanut butter kind of takes the bitter edge off the dark chocolate. Okay. But you're, you like dark chocolate. It's exactly the opposite. Like yeah. if it didn't have peanut butter or it was only dark chocolate, you'd like it. I'm going to give it like a five or six. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Are you not a peanut butter person? Not on stuff. What? Like I love peanut butter. Yeah. Like a good PB and J sandwich. Yeah. 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 Wheat bread. What, what about a Reese Hate them. Oh. Would you have had me on this broadcast if I, if I, if you know this earlier? <laughs> I'm so grieved at my spirit. I don't know why. My wife made, she likes Reese's Cups. Wow. You know, it's just one of those things that's so subjective and personalized. But yeah. So what do you, so you gave it a, like a seven on its own, but in comparison to like what you normally would do is to four. Yeah. Yeah. So really what we're coming down to is uh, it's hard to beat the unhealthy. Big. Yeah. But it's not gross. No, it's not gross. It's good. No, it's in the good, solidly in the good category. Man, I love you. I love you too. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. I appreciate the privilege. 